Listener Production. There is so much I adore about comedian Luke McGregor that it is hard to know where to start. There's the fact that he is one half of the writing and acting team behind the ABC's hit TV series, Rosehaven. Let's pick an easier one. No, no, we can do it. Activate your transverse abdominus. I am. Come on, you can do it. Come on. Almost. Or there's his awkward candidness in the presenter's chair on limited series, Luke Warm Sex. I'm Luke. Uh, I came because I'm not very good at affection and always feel nervous when I'm greeting someone, whether I should hug them or not, especially if they're someone I know. Or perhaps the fact that he says the words ball and bowl the same way, despite what Luke says is a lot of practice. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. In a moment, I'll be joined by the gang from Brook and Linda's Dream Club for The Weekend List. Together, we'll recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first... Here is my conversation with the refreshingly honest, totally uncomfortable and hilariously funny Luke McGregor. Luke McGregor, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's so lovely to have you here. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. And when we say here, obviously we are not in the same room because even though you're allowed to do that now, I still don't really like it. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I went to your front door, I knocked a few times and you said, no, no, I, you can't you can't come in, you have to do it at your house, so that's fine. Please that's leave. Fine. Yeah. Please leave my premises. <laughs> it was very awkward. <laughs> now, Luke, you grew up in Hobart and I know that Tasmanians always have a very particular relationship to the mainland. They're either in the category of rolling their eyes at those of us who have always lived on the mainland or they're the teenagers who couldn't wait to join us. Which one were you? I was a 25-year-old who couldn't wait to join you. I, I really liked Tassie, but doing stand-up comedy there was, it was tough when you were trying to, you know, say a joke about an anonymous person who everyone knew was your <laughs> uncle. It was it was very difficult. We had to do the, a different stuff every time. Um, yeah. Because the same people had come to the gig. And then I had a joke about Dad and Dad stood up midway through the joke and said, no, no, that's true. It's not true. And then mum stood up and said, it is true. And then they had an argument. And I'm like, I got, I got, to, I got to move to a bigger pond. Um, I moved to the mainland mainly to stop uh, my family heckling me, basically. I think that is an amazing reason to move. I um, was doing a little bit of reading on you before we sat down today and before you shut up at my house. And I read that <laughs> you hated school. What did you hate about it? I didn't look great. I had a Dislocated jaw, I think it's called. So my f- mouth wouldn't close properly. I always had a sort of like a stunned look of surprise. Um, was that painful? No, it was a. It was just one of my my back jaw was really further back than it should be. So yeah. I just sort of had my mouth always open a little, and um, I had big red hair and these massive glasses that were too big. I just looked like. I was grown in a laboratory to tease. And I had a cousin who was a teacher there who was super handsome. Oh, that's just rude. A girl I had a crush on once said, uh, I just can't believe you two are related. I just cannot believe Aww. it. It was just brutal. So I um, I don't know, I just didn't enjoy it. And I didn't like that, uh, you know, it was sort of teaching, I don't know a better way to do it, but they were sort of teaching just, you know, random scattershot stuff and some of I was interested in some of it I wasn't and I don't know I just I was happy to get out of there when they said school's the best year of your life I'm like god I hope not please please, please, don't please let that not be true <laughs> please be a liar turned out not to be true so I was very happy 
I uh, sympathise with the cousin situation. I have a very hot sister and we have the experience a lot of the time where people go, oh, wow, and there's this pause and then they go, you're shorter. <laughs> and you're like, there's so much more encapsulated in that sentence. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of history, a lot of hurts. Uh, my two brothers are both very handsome and I used to not let them come to my birthday parties because I was worried that Smart. people would like them more or girls would want to kiss them more than me. Uh, so I um, I just said, you guys can't come. Um, it took a long time for me to uh, be a not jealous older brother. But they're still more handsome, which is frustrating. Yeah, but you're the famous one now, so you've won. That's true, and probably if I spoke to uh, my psychologist, they'd say that's probably why you went and did it. Uh, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I've won and they're, um, you know, they don't even have close to the amount of Instagram followers I've got. So no, They have not been invited on the weekend yeah, briefing I, yet, I mean, nor will they I'm, ever be. Exactly. And they're not on Instagram, to be fair, but if they were, you know, they uh, please don't join, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, then they'll be the hot model ones that everyone follows. Yeah, that's true. You didn't mention when you talked about school there, friendships, though. Did you have good mates at school? I, I did, yeah. yeah. Two of my uh, best friends are both called Daniel. I'm still really close mates with them now, so um, it was good for friends. I had some good ones. So. Yeah. I feel like the friends that have stuck with me through life are the ones who want to hang out with me even when I'm not the coolest person in the room. And I'm usually not the coolest person in the room, mind you. But I don't believe it. I, I feel like the ones who stick with you even when you've got nothing to offer in a particular social situation but they treat you exactly the same way, they're the ones to keep. I agree. And I think as we get older too we make really good friends fast as well because you kind of know what you're looking for. Like Celia and I, mm. Celia's, you know, one of my closest friends but we, we became friends really quickly. So talk to me about Celia. How did you meet and what do you like about her? Uh, Seals I met on the stand-up scene. She was sort of already established when I was just starting and um, there was one gig I remember when uh, I was laughing and I leant down like this and Celia thought I was sighing and actually <laughs> called me out on stage and I was freaking out. I'm like, oh, no, Celia thinks I'm an asshole. Um, but we didn't really become friends until we started working on Utopia together and we just had the exact same sense of humour so we'd just be... It was just a lot of riffing. So um, it was like having an impro partner. I just found it really, really, really funny. Um, and so I just wanted to be around that. And Silly is also really kind. Like she's, um, and she doesn't need to be. She could be mean and people would still want to hang out with her, but she's not. She's really, she's a really nice person. I like the idea of someone not having to be kind, being so impressive and capable that kindness is not necessary for them. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't that a lot of Hollywood directors? They, uh, they just have to be, uh, you just have to be really good at your job and then you can be an asshole. But uh, I shouldn't, I sh- I'd love to work with Hollywood directors. Maybe I shouldn't say that as a blanket yeah, statement. Yeah, don't say that. Suck yeah, up okay. to them. Suck Follow- up to them. I will. I apologise if you're watching. We'll cut that out. Uh, James Cameron, I apologise. Um <laughs> She's really, really funny and really, really nice person. Are the things that make your relationship work off screen the same as what makes it work on screen? I, I think so, yeah. What you were saying about you can kind of be in any mood around these people and they'll still accept you, that's that's silly for me. And sometimes we'll even warn each other when we're on set because we had to hang out every day pretty much for many, many years to yeah. get Rosehaven made and written. And um, sometimes we just warn each other. We just say, not in a good mood this morning. Um so just letting you know, just so you, if you put a few minds down, uh, they're not going to step on them. It's um, If we thought we'd always come back together immediately, um, mm. guess it sounds a little lame, but part of the reason we heal so quickly is because as soon as I had an argument with Seals, that means oh, I, would, I would immediately start missing my best friend, so I'd want to make it get back together again. 
we had some very funny moments where one of us would walk out of a room only to storm back in and immediately um, heal the friendship. I'm we, sorry, I'm sorry, take <laughs> yeah, me back. It was very much, very much like that, so, yeah. So tell me how you ended up in comedy in the first place because you studied economics at university, I think? Yeah, I was economics and public policy. Yeah, so how does that sort of neatly put you onto the stand-up comedy scene? Well, the university I was at had a bar it hosted raw comedy, that uh, low-budget Australian idol for comedians. Um, <laughs> I went to support my housemate because he was entering and I, I got pretty drunk and someone didn't show up and so I said, can I take their spot? Just thought it would be funny to get up on stage. I just The only idea I had was to get up on stage and act like I was going to be amazing. So I got up on stage fairly tipsy and then just told everyone, you guys are in for a, a real treat and <laughs> like got people to put down their wine glasses so they didn't spill it on themselves. And I said, does anyone have asthma? They've got their puffer ready. Like I really like hyped up my set yeah, and then just had no jokes um, <laughs> and bombed horrendously. But the first half went well. And so that was just enough of a little taste for me to never stop doing it after that basically. That takes some guts, though. More booze than guts. Because most people I know would never in a million years jump up on stage with no notice, right? I think the guts is when you start thinking, I want to do this for real or I want to do this yeah. more because then then there's stakes. Then you start caring about it. So I actually got more, more nervous doing stand-up the more known I got or the more money I started making from it because then I really cared it took years and years and years and years and years. Like I had panic attacks on stage, I hyperventilated. And then only sort of recently, just sort of before COVID really, I started doing gigs and started to just enjoy them. Um, so it was almost like I, I started not caring and then I really cared and now I really care but also just enjoy it. So I'm back at the mindset I had at the start, which is this is fine, just have fun, it doesn't matter. What would that panic feeling be like for you? Uh, I'd start to be very conscious of my breathing. Um, I'd start to tell jokes and not breathe in in between or not like just talk out and then uh, yeah. try and take a big deep breath afterwards and then start again. And so in order to keep my comic timing, sometimes I just sacrifice breathing in um, and then I'd breathe in too much to try and make up for that and then I'd start to get pins and needles all over my body. And then the weird thing is I felt like I was going to pass out but when you hyperventilate, I think I'm telling this right, is that you're you're actually overstimulated, so you're not yes you're not going to pass out. It's the opposite. Um, it was really scary. And once I actually had to sit in the audience, I just said, "I'm so sorry, I'm really panicking right now. I just need to sit down." And so, I, so I someone I sat next to someone in the audience, and the guy just rubbed my back. It was really helpful. Oh, what a lovely dude! Uh, yeah, it was a lovely man. Um, but there are other times when I like I can't keep leaning on this abrupt crowd work. Like I just genuinely want to do a set where I'm just having fun rather than yeah. relying on the crowd's kindness to um, get through my panic. Um, it was a rough time. The closest I can come to having had the same experience is I have to have regular MRIs of my brain and you have to lie in the MRI machine for about 45 to 50 minutes. And I used to get really panicky in that machine, mostly because I sort of thought oh, I can't get out. I'm just stuck here and I have to lie here. They're a really unpleasant sound too. It's a really yes, loud. Yes, they sound like a jackhammer. Yeah. So it's not relaxing. You can't sort of go in and meditate. And it took me quite a while to get used to that. But the only reason I got used to it was because I had to keep having scans of my brain. You didn't have to keep doing stand-up. So what made you keep doing it? 
It was still more fun than my job in superannuation, even though I was having a fairly, even though I was hyperventilating a fair bit. I'm like, this is still more fun than those spreadsheets I was doing before. Yeah, right. What's what's the most nerve wracking part of your job, or does any part of your earning money make you nervous anymore? No, I don't think so. There are things in my life that make me nervous and anxious, but I get very anxious about physical stuff. Mm. I don't like flying. I don't like heights. I don't like anything medical. I tend to really concentrate my anxiety there in high doses, so there's none left for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I found that too. I'm still not a great flyer and there's still a bunch of stuff that makes me nervous, but, yeah, but comedy almost becomes a little island of um, not that anymore. Huh? So tell me about the superannuation. There must have been a point when you... Are you thinking of swapping over or consolidating? Oh, yes, or? tell me about your funds and <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I actually am well consolidated. <laughs> right, uh, great. I, I've, do, I've done that job. It's very easy, folks. Just jump onto the ATO's website. Anyway, it really is. Huh? You, you study economics at university and you end up working, you sort of follow the traditional career path, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. There must have been a point there where that was something you were passionate about and something you were interested in. I've always liked economics because I like arguing my points with, I guess, maths or... Yeah. One thing that always bugged me growing up was that my my dad and I have very different political beliefs. I'm, um, you know, I'm a lefty artist and he's a right-wing business owner. Um, we always sort of had very different beliefs about unions and things like that and I, I, I always wanted to argue my points with a little bit more, I don't know, substance or something. I always felt mm. like I was sort of on a moral high ground and I couldn't understand where dad was coming from. And then I thought maybe if I study economics, I'll be able to understand both sides better. Um, and so economics was like my window to the world. I liked, I like how it evaluates things or, um, you know, when you talk about like an issue like migration is a big one where it's, um, there is a finite amount of people that Australia can fit on the land before people start falling into the ocean. But up until that point, Migration comes down to, you know, how much uh, infrastructure do we have? Are mm. we still able to transport people? Is it um, how much food can we replenish? Like these, there are, there are exact figures as to how many people we can let in um, before it, it, it actually does become a burden. And I, I like that it sort of takes away the, the moral about it and just comes down to a question of um, logistics because I feel like that's all it is, is a question of logistics. And, if that's, um, and luckily we absolutely can take on people and, we can, and it's much more cost-effective to bring in refugees than it is to put them on an overseas um, cage. And I like being able to make those points with a bit less of the moral and a bit more of the money and logistical side of it. I feel like sometimes when I watch friends who sit on opposite sides of the political spectrum argue, it's like they're arguing in different languages. Yeah. And I feel like with what you're saying, you're almost saying you want to argue the progressive point of view with the language of the right. That's exactly it, yeah. Um, I feel like everyone gets money. So if I can tell people why it's financially better for them to do this, then I can get through. Or like you say, it's it's like we're both speaking the same language. Yeah, exactly. You were on Q&A, I'm about to say earlier this year, but what is time oh, in a pandemic? Yeah. I think it was earlier this year. I honestly couldn't tell you either. I'll text Barnaby and ask. Yeah, ask him <laughs> yeah, because I yeah. watched you arguing with the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, and I... I kind of imagined that was a little bit how you used to have conversations with your dad now. It was exactly like that, yeah. It was exactly like, it was like an uncle who says some pretty horrible stuff at Christmas and you 
thank you, lucky stars, that they don't have any power in politics, but then this one <laughs> this does. This one really so, has quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot of power. I'm like, oh, God. It was a weird interaction to know that, you know, he's obviously got popular enough to be voted in, but some of the stuff he was saying, I'm just like, really? Yeah. Um, and then would just shoot me down like my dad would, like wouldn't argue back, would just say no. Nah. <laughs> you have to give a reason. You can't just say no. Like you got to give me wise. And then he just, we just move on and just like, all right. You know, I was ready to duel. But I, I think I was like that, you know, that swordsman in um, Indiana Jones that does all the fancy. Yes. And then Indiana Jones just shoots him. I think that was Barnaby with me. Just go, <laughs> no, nah. like, nah, we're not doing that. Nah. Nah, no, 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 not engaging. Sorry. <laughs> now we talked about. Rosehaven, which I think was 2016 in its first season, yeah, which yep, was yep. also the year that Lukewarm Sex came out. So a massive year for you after having picked up a bunch of awards in comedy but really making it in TV. That was uh, my first nude scene <laughs> on TV, yeah. Tell me, um, tell me about your first nude scene in TV. I was in a nudist colony. It was the place to do it. Best place to get nude uh, as opposed to like a Macca's or a bus stop. <laughs> um, the director said, well, oh, I'm happy to get nude as well if it makes you feel more comfortable. And I said, it would make me feel more comfortable. And then he didn't, then he didn't want to. <laughs> he didn't <laughs> it want was to just an it. offer. I, I can't direct without my clothes. I need my clothes to point at things. Um, what was weird was I was standing in the room with all these nude people and having to get nude myself, but I couldn't just take my clothes off. I had to go into another room to get nude to then come back out again. <laughs> yeah, I don't okay. know why... But something that felt makes weird sense about, to me. Yeah, something felt weird about just pulling down my pants and being nude. I'm like, I've got to go to a different room. I've got to get into my birthday outfit. Yes, and reveal and then come the back nude. Out. Maybe after about 30 minutes, it was just fine. I was, um, as someone who's, you know, pretty anxious, I was surprised at how quickly I was adjusted to it, mostly because the dominant paradigm in the room was that being nude was normal. Yeah. I just sort of started to take on their beliefs because they were so comfortable with it that I started to become comfortable with it. The most annoying part was that I got sunburnt on my um, bum and genitals. <laughs> and so now when I go to a dermatologist to get my skin checked, I have to get them checked as well. Whereas before <laughs> that I could have just wore a pair of undies. Um, so that was a long-term effect that I didn't, I didn't think about. The time. Yeah, that's pretty tough. I, I've always wondered how you pitched that show. Pretend I'm the fancy TV decision maker because I can see the success of lukewarm sex having watched it. I can see that it works. I can see that it's funny. I can see that it's warm and kind at the same time. But I don't know how you sell that for the first time. We pitched it as how do you get better at sex? Like if someone goes, I want to be better at sex, what do you do? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? What are the experts? Um, and we just sort of pitched like that and we just said, listen, we, we just want to go and we just want to try and get better at sex. We just want to talk to a bunch of people who are in the industry or uh, people who work at um, like owners of sex toy shops, sexologists, um, masseuse, like who, anyone who has a sex course, we want to go to it. And so, yeah, that idea of if you want to improve your golf swing, you can get a coach. If you want to be better at sex, who do you talk what to? What do you do? Uh, and it went through a lot of different iterations because one of the things that the network wondered is, well, how do you judge it at the end? You know, and we're like, we don't yeah, know. Sure. Should we try and have sex with someone and get them to score me? It was kind of weird. And then we ended up, you know, it, more, it became more of a journey of being – able to communicate about sex, to getting rid of the taboo of talking about sex as opposed to someone trying to improve and then be able to score it at the end. Yeah. It's an incredibly vulnerable piece of TV. Have you always been willing to try and make yourself vulnerable or is that something that's come with age, with experience, with skill? 
I, I think being a comedian lets me get away with a few yeah. more things than maybe I would have otherwise. And because I was going to a sex shop for television or had a purpose to ask these questions, it almost made me a bit more braver to ask. Mm. And and also I just I I was just genuinely curious and I thought if I'm ever gonna be someone who has sex as part of their day to day, I'm gonna need to learn this stuff. And so I just I just thought, okay, I'll I'll just go all in. And um like I had no idea about any contraceptives that are available to, to females. So I just had no idea. I just took it as an opportunity to like learn all the things I wish I'd learned in high school or wish my parents had taught me growing up. So yeah, that gave me a bit more bravery. Do you like being famous, Luke? I like my level of famous in that I maybe get the odd free drink at a pub or said hello to on the street, but I don't have like paparazzi outside of my house. I talked to, um, I have to name drop. Do it. But uh, to say this, but um, I did an interview with Taylor Swift. Um, That was a big name drop. I asked her, what do you do if you just run out of milk? Like, can you go to the shop? Can you just go get more milk or do you have to send someone? And she said, oh, I can't leave my house without a posse. Wow. Because the police have told me I've received a, I think I think she called it a critical level of death threats where they say you, we're, we're genuinely concerned someone will try and kill you if you go out by yourself. And so now she has to go out with security. She just has to because that's what law enforcement has recommended she do. So she can't just go for a walk by herself. Um, unless she wears a mask and then even then it's hard because if she comes out of her place, people know it's her uh, and people are always sort of staking out, outside of it. So, um, yeah, she just has to have a level of security that luckily she's extremely rich so she can afford it, but, you know, she has to d- dedicate quite a lot of money to security. But, you know, she says she, she loves what she does so it's, so it's worth it. But, um, but yeah, it's, that's not – she just kind of had to say goodbye to that part of her life. And what's next for you? Because you've had this incredible TV success in both drama and then also the work you've done with The Weekly and with Lukewarm Sex where you're on screen as you. Suddenly the world's opening up again. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to do something that has blood in it or maybe a sex scene or a death scene. It'd be nice to be able to, Seals and I talk about how it'd be nice to be able to shoot someone or kill someone. Um, That was not what I was expecting you to say. uh, uh, Sorry, I forgot to say in the context of a TV show as opposed to uh, in real life. Um, You know, if they decide to one day of the year is the purge, sure, I'll get involved. But uh, otherwise... um, I'll definitely work with Seals again at some point. We're just not sure when. But for the rest of the year, I've kind of just taken it as a holiday, even though I, I, my plan was to go to New Zealand, but that didn't uh, happen. Can't go anywhere. Because um, of, of circumstances. It's become a bit of a staycation. I, I've always, my dream is I've always wanted to write a horror, horror movie. Um, that's the dream. And maybe a book about economics that's like makes economics fun for people. They're kind of the big three. I feel like you could combine the final two. I feel like we could get a horror movie about an economics book and this would be peak Luke McGregor. Well, just look at today's economy. Uh, that's, there's your horror. No, um, yeah. You sounded will, just um, like uh, Alan Kohler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got a poster of him just outside of shots. Um, <laughs> uh, praise to it every morning. Um, I think maybe a yeah, horror film that educates people on economics. I'll think about it. I will. Uh, it, it'd certainly be a time saver if I combine the two, yeah. I will keep the payment that is due to me uh, from every DVD sold very, very low. Luke, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. It has been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. I've I've really enjoyed it. That's it for my conversation with the hilarious Luke McGregor. You can catch him everywhere, mostly on the ABC. Don't go away, though, because The Weekend List is coming right up. (laughs) 
Welcome to The Weekend List and welcome to Linda Mariano from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club, which is an incredible culture podcast that covers everything from books to film to fashion to society to I don't even know what society is, but I like it. Welcome, Linda. This is what we do. We talk about the issues that matter, whether it's Taylor Swift getting back at Jake Gyllenhaal in a song form, whether it's a huge festival lineup or whether it's, you know, a movie that Brooke and I have just cried over through a weekend. You are one of my new favourite listens and I'm embarrassed to admit that it's new. I should have been there a lot. I wanted to be early on the bandwagon and I'm late. I'm glad that you're here. Um, And for that, I won't reprimand you. Thank you. The most important thing, everyone, is to participate. You don't have to be first or the best. You just have to get listening to Brooke and Linda. Linda, what have you got for me this week? What have I got to do this weekend? Well, speaking of podcasts and stuff that we've really been getting into, so the Australian Podcast Awards happened in the last week. Yes, Brooke and Linda's Dream Club did pick up a couple of awards. Best Indigenous. Uh, We won bronze for arts and culture. But there was a podcast that was there that won a couple of awards that I have seen splashed over all of my podcast apps. It's so highly rated. The artwork is spectacular. But for some reason, I just had never clicked through to listen to it. And when it won a couple of awards, I went, that's the one I've got to listen. It's called Private Affairs. So it picked up the award for Best Fiction and also Podcast of the Year. So they are huge awards to get, you know? Yeah, that's massive. And I think I've seen this one around too. And I don't know why, but I just haven't clicked despite thinking, oh, that looks good. It's such a good listen. So I'm a huge fan of a fiction podcast. It's my one of my ultimate pastimes is to smash through every single episode and do a full binge listen of a fiction podcast. This one has been created by a woman called Christine DJ Kicks Mwaratura. So she's the creator, the writer, the director, the producer. It's this fully little factory of independent women putting together this podcast. It's a romantic drama about an interracial couple. So it's very kind of drawing on her experiences being an African Australian. It's wonderful. They go to dance hall nightclubs. The main character, V, is this beautiful Zimbabwean girl who now lives in Melbourne, is soaking up the nightlife. She's never dated a white guy before. She meets this really charming, handsome, wealthy Australian doctor in a club one night while she's dressed as Nicki Minaj at a Halloween party. (laughs) And it's just this delightful, really cleverly scripted insight into the lived experience as to what it is like dating interracially. And that might Mm. sound like a kind of simple concept that has been covered, you know, again and again in films and increasingly so. But I just thought this was told with such a beautiful niche Australian voice that you don't hear often enough. And I loved hearing her, loved hearing the friends that were cast as her best friends that were in the club with her. I thought that The characters were really nuanced as well. There wasn't a good guy. There wasn't a bad guy. They were all just real people really trying to navigate the bits and pieces of what it is getting into a new relationship. It's a delight and I honestly smashed all of the episodes in less than 24 hours. Amazing. I am 
searching private affairs as we chat and subscribing. I'm really glad I met you. Eggplant emoji. A whap peach emoji. And then something weird happened. You guys promise to never repeat this to anyone. Worried for that, huh? And I was a please be. But something wasn't adding up. <laughs> no, babe. Make, it's not. It's not. Make babe. it make sense. It's nothing. <sighs> no. What do you want? You don't get to question me. Honestly, I'm not even sure what that kind of love is. I love it. I love that recommendation. I want to recommend the shameless girls who are presenting the second season of the books that changed my life. It's a really good concept from these two. And the thing I love most about it is that it's a book podcast that doesn't require me to have read the book in advance. You've already won me. Don't have to feel guilty. So it's by Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews, who are the duo behind the juggernaut that is the Shameless podcast. And they talk to sort of really interesting people about the books that changed their life. It lives up to the title. And they ask questions like, tell us about the book that changed the way you think about the world or tell us the book that defines your adolescence or tell us about the book that you buy for a friend who's going through a tough time. And using those as kind of the kickoff question, they managed to have conversations with these really fascinating individuals who you've probably heard interviewed before. So in this season so far, they've got Lisa Wilkinson, formerly of the Today Show, now a project host. They talked to Leanne Moriarty, who is, of course, uh, one of Australia's most prolific writers and wrote Big Little Lies and Nine Perfect Strangers, which have since been turned into TV series. So these are people that you've probably heard interviewed before and you've probably heard them interviewed elsewhere. But because Sarah and Michelle use these really clever book-related questions to get into the conversation, they give you this new window into these people's lives and end up having them reflect on what made them the way they are in a way that I hadn't heard before. So I'm a really big fan, for example, of Leanne Moriarty's work and I learned all this stuff I didn't know about her and yet I've heard her interviewed a bunch of times and I just thought it was a really clever premise. I loved the first season and I am racing through the second. I went over to the US for the filming of Big Little Lies and I was lucky enough that I was there when they were filming the the big school trivia night and seeing Nicole sort of emerge from the shadows dressed exactly as I'd described her uh, as Celeste was strangely emotional. So that's what you get, folks, from the Shameless Girls who are on the Listener app with the books that changed my life. What else have you got, Linda? Make my weekend fulsome and glorious. All right, here's a big one for you. This is another one that I have been smashing through in the last day, and it's the fact that Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, two extremely talented women who have created, written, and directed Pen 15, a TV show that launched in the last year. It's on Stan if you've never seen it. Have you ever watched a couple episodes of this TV show? I have, and I think I just realised something that I should have realised before. Because I used to write pen 15 on my pencil case at high school because when you write pen 15, it looks like a different word. Is that the reference? That's literally what it is. Amazing. 
So if that title alone does not bring you into the world of what Pen15 <laughs> is, I don't know what will. Honestly, invest in watching the first episode right through to the end of the second season. So basically what happened was they put out the first season, they put out the first half of the second season, and then they had to take a break because of COVID. So there's this kind of quite inspired episode mm. halfway through the second season at episode seven where the first minutes of it are real life and then the rest of the episode has been animated and now they've just picked oh, up wild. where they've left off, which is episode eight until the end of the second season. In a nutshell, Anna and Maya are two real-life best friends who live in the States and they're in their 30s now. They created this show where they play themselves as 13-year-olds going through every sexual first, everything you discover as a 13-year-old, awkward young women growing up, witnessing the social hierarchy and class systems in high school, getting your period for the first time, wondering what masturbation is. It's so intricate and weird and funny. And the whole time it's done with such respect to what we were like as 13-year-olds. So it doesn't make teenage girls seem stupid. It's very, very real. Like they do stuff that makes me cringe so hard with the fashion and the way they bend over backwards to impress the floppy-haired boy that looks like Brad Renfro in their classroom. And they're, you know, 30-year-old women playing 13-year-old girls. It's so funny. It's so amazing. The main, main character, Maya, who's also the director of the episodes, the way that she tells her story in terms of being half Japanese, not knowing her identity, feeling really left out at school, it's just hilarious and so biting in every single episode. And even in these last few episodes, I feel like they've stepped it up in terms of the emotional weight. So it actually really brought me to tears a couple of times when you go, oh, that is what young girls go through and we do have to nurture them more and they're just so tender but they're also little assholes. It's awesome. I caught a couple of episodes of the first season and I honestly cannot tell you why I didn't keep watching. I think I just life happened in between but I loved it and there's something about even when there's not a lot of action happening in that show, the fact that you've got these two women who are quite clearly in their 30s (laughs) having a crush on a boy who is quite clearly 13 That alone is hysterical. It is. It's done with such weirdness and such, I don't know, just the the brazenness with which they approach every scene that they do and the attention to detail, the modems, Mm. the landline phones, the butterfly clips, the weird muffin tops hanging over low-rise jeans. It's all there for you to soak up. My last one is a bit cheeky because it's for the Melbourne folk, but the Melbourne folk have had a tough 18 months and they deserve some good times. I want to recommend Higher Order, which is... I'm about to sound so wanky, everyone, an immersive dining experience that has been put together by Scott Pickett. Melbourne folk will know Scott Pickett. He's quite a well-known chef down here. He is the brains behind Long Grain and Matilda and Estelle, which are all beautiful restaurants. And Higher Order is a multi-sensory experience and it kind of combines delicious food, like your dinner, 
with performance art and design at the same time. And it sort of mixes up all of your senses, I suppose, because it doesn't just give you the smell and the taste of the food, but it brings together sound and it brings together textures and it kind of merges it all together. My husband and I went along on Friday night. We were blown away, but we were also a little bit like kids in a candy shop because we didn't know what was happening and we didn't understand what we'd gotten ourselves into. And yet we found ourselves drinking green tea and dancing with this incredible woman who was dressed as like a high priestess from your incredible Asian inspired fantasies. And we found ourselves getting hot food out of vending machines and walking into a giant Asian style steamer as if we were ourselves the steam buns. Thankfully, we then got actual steam buns and just ate them and they were better. It was so much fun and properly weird and it's hanging around in Melbourne for the rest of this month. And if you can, you should definitely get along. Linda, thank you so much for joining me for the weekend list. For those of you who are listening, you have got some subscribing and following to do if you haven't already. You can find Brooke and Linda's Dream Club and you can find the briefing in the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a lovely review and a rating because it makes mine and Linda's weekend, everybody. The briefing will be back bright and early Monday morning from 6am where we will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.